Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And if you are new with us, let me explain to you where we have been over these summer months. We'll wrap up this series next weekend, this series that we've entitled One Another. Really what we've been doing is, is picking out certain one another passages. And if, if you forgot or you didn't know this, so I mentioned this last week, there's 59 passages that have that phrase one another in the New Testament. And so obviously we don't have time to deal with every one of those over the, over the summer months that we've been in, but we've been taking certain ones that really you could put into categories to where the others would fall underneath those. And so we've been looking at those key passages of Scripture that really drive home how we are to, as people that have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, how we live in relationship with one another. And so this morning is no different. We're going to find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 10. If you know anything about this place, if you're new to this place, let me also let you know, we teach God's word verse by verse here. And we love to go through books of the Bible. And so when we're in series like this, where we're not necessarily going through books of the Bibles, we're still taking a chunk of Scripture to walk verse by verse through. And so oftentimes when you jump into a passage of Scripture like we're doing here, it's important that we give the context that leads us up to the verses that we're dealing with. And so this morning is no different. We're jumping into Hebrews 10. We're going to look at verses 24 and 25, but it's important that we understand from a broader perspective the purpose of the book of Hebrews. Now, we're going to see how, you are, how alert you are this morning. So, you have the title of this book called Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it. Many people speculate, but, it, but the book does not start off telling us who wrote it like many other epistles do. But the book is entitled Hebrews, so who do you think the book is being written to? You can say out loud, Hebrews. Very good. Some of you are like, is this a trick question? No, it's not. The book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews, so it was written to Jewish people. And so what you'll find in the book of Hebrews is you'll find a lot of references to things that you will find in the Old Testament, to how the Hebrews were to worship to how they worship the Lord in the temple and in their tabernacle. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing is, is he's giving those illustrations that would, have, would make perfect sense to the Hebrew people to drive home this reality, and I can say it in three words, to drive home this reality that Jesus is better. He's better than the way that they used to worship, helping the Hebrews understand that everything that they did as they worshiped in the temple and in the tabernacle, that that was all pointing to what Jesus would do. And so the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the Hebrew people not to continue to worship the way that they used to, but to understand that Jesus is the culmination of all of the things that they used to do, and Jesus is better. The message really applies today, doesn't it? Because there's a lot of things that are going after our attention and going after our worship. But we constantly need to bring ourselves back to the reality that Jesus is better than, and you fill in the blank. So when we come to chapter 10, you really have the writer of Hebrews making a turn and he's saying, okay, because Jesus is better, for nine chapters I've been telling you why he's better, now here is your response to that reality. So look at verse 19. Therefore, 
Because Jesus is better, what's our response? Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. So what he's speaking of is we no longer have to have this separation from God because God is perfect and I'm not and a high priest needs to go in once a year and make a sacrifice for all of the sins of the people. Like that's no longer Like, now I can have confidence to have a relationship with a holy God because of Jesus. It's a new and living way that he has provided for me. The curtain of the temple was torn in two when Jesus said it was finished. That's what the writer is getting at, verse 21. But that's not the only conclusion. He says, since again, and he says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So now Jesus is our high priest. He's our intercessor between a holy God and me, a sinful person. Jesus is that mediator so that I can have a relationship with God. So what's my response? Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is my first response. This is the first let us statement in this passage of scripture in Hebrews 10. What do I respond based on what Jesus has done for me? Man, I want to draw near to him. I want to have a relationship with him. I want to relish in that reality. I want to take advantage of that reality that God sees me through Jesus Christ so he doesn't see me in my sin or in my imperfections or my mistakes last week, but he sees me through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So I want to draw near with a full assurance of faith knowing that God accepts me for who I am. I can come to him in confidence. It's my first response. And my heart has been sprinkled clean. There's that Old Testament language again. He's made me clean. His blood has washed away my sin. Verse 23. Here's another response. Let us what? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. That man, the anchor that I hold on to The foundation of my life is the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. That there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ, Romans 8.1. That nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.30, 31 through 39. Nothing. So let me hold fast. Let me anchor my life in that reality that my hope, it's not this empty optimism, but it's a reality in my life that I need to hold fast to that. I need to draw near to God growing in my relationship with him. But notice the third let us, and this is going to lead us to our two verses today. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's the title of the message if you're taking notes this morning. Why do we gather? Ever ask yourself that? Now you're the 11 o'clock service, not the nine, so you got to sleep in a little longer, but I said to the nine, yeah, you probably ask that every Sunday morning when your alarm goes off. Why am I doing this again? Like it's a valid question. Like, it's actually a really good question. Why do we gather? Why do we do this every Sunday? Why do we get up and when we could be doing a lot of other things on Sunday mornings, like we could be sleeping in, we could be out on the water, we could be doing whatever. So why do we gather? Have you ever asked yourself that? Like, I've found that as my kids 
are getting older, so I have a 15-year-old daughter, 12-year-old son, that I, what I've found is I have to switch my parenting to go from, you're gonna do this because I said so, right? So if I ask some of your kids, hey, what does mom and dad tell you when they're getting you ready for church on why you're doing this? And like, did we even have a choice, right? Like when your kids are little, you're just like, you're gonna do this and you're not gonna disobey and you're gonna like it. But what I've found is as your kids get older, I'm just getting into that, like, like for sure my kids need to obey, but now I'm having to, to also help them understand the why behind the what. And so if you're here this morning, and you're like, man, I really never thought about it. I just kind of have always done it because if you were to answer that question, why do we gather? If I was to pose that to you, maybe some of you would say, well, it's just tradition, man. I always did it. Ever since I was a baby, I was born in the church and I just have kind of done it or you know, this is still kind of a cultural norm in the era we live in that everyone says they're connected to a church. Most people, not everyone, but most people didn't say how often you go there. But if I've not run into very few people when I've said, because they're always going to ask me, well, Johnny, what do you do? It's nice to meet you. And I say, I'm a pastor. And if they don't run away, then, then they're like, well, where are you a pastor? And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor at Salem Chapel. And then I'll ask them, I was like, hey, do you, are you connected anywhere to church? And you can always tell when they're like, trying to come up with something really quick because they pause. But nevertheless, we live in an area where it's still somewhat part of the culture to be at least connected to a church. You at least go there at Easter and Christmas Eve, right? So maybe it's tradition. Maybe some of you are like, well, I come because this is where my friends go. That's, that's why I gather is I come here for my friends. Or maybe some of you, like, you started now to have kids, and you're like, man, we haven't been very consistent in, in going to church, but now because we have kids, we really want them to learn some things about the Lord, so we're going to come to church. And if we were honest, the, how we would ask why do we gather is, well, because of my kids. Or maybe you're here, and you're like, man, I haven't been in church in a long time, and I've just hit a crisis, and really the reason why I'm gathering is because I need help in my time of trouble, and I'm ashamed of it, but the reality is, is I, I really, if I look at my life, is I really find myself only coming to church when I'm in a crisis, and so it goes from crisis to crisis when I gather, so maybe that's your reason. If that's you, man, I'm glad you're here today. It could be other reasons. It could be, man, I do want to grow my relationship with the Lord. I find, I find opportunities in how I can serve in the community and, and, and serve others inside the church. I mean, we go on and on with the reasons, right? But I want you to write down this reason that comes straight out of these two verses. And it's really in a response to what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's why I started in verse 19. Here's what I want you to understand, that gathering together is essential to your spiritual growth. Essential. I use that word for a reason. It's not, it's not Gathering together is optional for your spiritual growth or you can take it or leave it. No, no, no. Gathering together is essential. Let me make it personal. For my spiritual growth. You're like, well, you're up on stage. Yes, for my spiritual growth, gathering together. I'm no different than you. Our elders are no different than you. We're all part of this body of believers. Gathering together is essential to my spiritual growth. Really what the writer is getting at in these two verses is, is being connected and being consistent is essential. Essential. Why? Because we need each other. 
want you to say that out loud with me. You ready? Say this with me. We need each other. We do. We need to fellowship with one another. We need to strengthen one another. We need each other. We're going to see today in these two verses, we're to stir up one another. We're going to talk about what that means. We're to encourage one another. We need each other. God did not make you to live in a vacuum. He made you for community. We need each other. And oftentimes, when we answer that question that I pose to you, that's the title of this message, Why Do We Gather? Oftentimes, we answer that in selfish ways. Because we think to ourselves, well, I gather for what the church can do for me. We oftentimes think that, right? Well, what do, you know, I've, I'm new to the area. I've been looking at different churches. And, and I'm like, How's that band compared to the next band? Or man, their first time gift bags are way like nicer than the last church we were at last week. Or man, I like the way that guy dressed versus the way that that guy dressed. Or we could go on and on, right? And what we find is oftentimes we are falling so often because we're selfish by nature into this consumeristic motivation on why we go to church. And the reality is that's not true. But we can have motivations that are all about me. But get this, here's the other flip side. We can also say I'm no longer gathered together because of selfishness as well, because it's not how is the church going to meet my needs, but I don't go to church because I'm reminded about how the church has hurt me. Like something went on and I really felt hurt by that, really felt hurt by that interaction, really felt hurt by that person. We felt hurt by that situation, and so I just left. And it's sad to say, but there's many people that are still disconnected from churches all over the place because they were hurt. But at the same time, that's really when you get down to it. And I don't say this to minimize someone's pain. It's really rooted in selfishness. Or it's unmet expectations, or someone put the pastor on a platform that he should never be put on, and unfortunately that pastor moved away, or worst case, he fell in some type of sin, and that shattered that person because really their motivation for coming is they connected with a personality rather than the Savior. We could go on and on, we know those stories, but those motivations are actually rooted in selfishness. What's interesting in these two verses, in verses 24 and 25, is what we don't find is the emphasis in these two verses is not on what you get out of the gathering, but what you give. But so often what the enemy wants us to do because of selfish motivations about what a church can do for me, or because you're hurt in some way, or because something has happened to you and you started to pull away, we get caught up into thinking that we can be isolated from the body of Christ and still grow in our walk with the Lord. And what I want to drive home as a side note for us this morning is isolation is the enemy to your spiritual growth. It's the enemy. How many of you... Like, we'll like watching the Discovery Channel and wa like watching these nature shows. How many of you? Yeah, like Shark Week or, or uh, you know, you're out in the Serengeti and the plains. Like, I, those things suck me in. Or you're on YouTube and you see one video and you go to another and then, the, and you're down the rabbit hole. And, and 
I like that stuff. And I know enough about this nature stuff to be dangerous. By no means would I be someone who could teach ever a science class. But nevertheless, you know what's interesting? When I'm watching one of these safari shows where they're out and showing how, in particular, lions hunt, it's interesting. You'll find, like, water buffaloes, right? And I never realized how dangerous a water buffalo is. Like, they're, they're ugly, they don't really, I mean, they look like a big cow with some horns, but water buffalo are actually very dangerous. And what you see in the hunting shows is, is you see the way the lion hunts these water buffaloes. And just as a side note, the female lions are the ones that do the majority of the hunting, which you ladies are like, well, that's not a surprise, because I do most of the cooking, right? But, but you'll find these female lions when they hunt, and you know what their aim and objective is? to separate one of those animals from the pack. Because they know if they can separate that one animal from the pack, then they are vulnerable. But not just that, you know what else they look for? They look for the animal that's wounded. But they can't, because the animal that's wounded and separ separated from the pack is game for that lion who's hunting. What does 1 Peter 5, 8 say? Be sober. In other words, be, be alert, be vigilant, be aware. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Isn't it interesting that oftentimes when we are the most vulnerable in our walk with the Lord, whether that's hurt, whether that's pain, whether that's trial, the temptation for us is to actually pull ourselves away from the very thing that will help us the most. And when we do that, we are most susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. I've found in my life, like there are many things that I can think of in my life right now that I'm not going to give you specific example of because if I have to do one of those things with you, I don't want you to think, man, Johnny doesn't want to do this. But at the same time, what I've found are things that I know are opportunities for me to encourage, to stir up, we're going to talk about these things here in a minute, to, to really do what God has designed the body to do. Oftentimes I'm like, man, I don't have time for that, or, or there's this, or there's that, and there's that internal struggle. What I've found is, is that it's so important for me to press through that. Because when I am battled the most to not go to something or be present in something, what I found out is that's the thing that I need the most. Because when I press through that, you know what ends up happening? I'm like, man, I'm so glad that I fought the temptation to cancel that or to go to that. And it's so important for you to understand that oftentimes the things that, are, that you are battling the most not to attend are the things that the enemy knows are gonna benefit you the most. Isolation is the enemy to spiritual growth. So what are the two reasons why we, why we gather together and why it's essential to our spiritual growth? Here's the first one, and it's found in verse 24. We gather together to do this, to inspire one another. And I say that because look at verse 24 again. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That word stir means to stimulate strongly, to arouse, to inspire, to motivate. Now I know whenever I give a sporting illustration, I've already eliminated 40% of the crowd. But stick with me. Because all of you, at least in my high school, we had to go to pep rallies whether we wanted to or not. 
But what's the purpose of a pep rally? What's the purpose of tailgating? What's the purpose of, of those types of events? They are to stir up your emotions and to stir up your allegiance to something. That's the word for here, the word stir, to stimulate strongly, to inspire. Now, unfortunately, in a lot of churches, we have individuals stirring up one another for the wrong things, right? We've all been a part of that in some place or fashion. But can I just say this? Let's just stop the expectation that there are perfect people in a church. Because we're all imperfect. You know what that means? That means that we're all going to sin. We're all going to hurt one another from time to time. But how do we get past that? Well, first of all, we don't leave the gathering, but we understand it's essential to our spiritual growth because we gather to inspire one another. And we inspire one another, what does the verse say? In two areas, very simply. We inspire one another to love. But to love who? To love what? That's the word love that many of us are very familiar with. It's that selfless love. It's not a selfish love. It's a selfless love. And we inspire, we stir up one another to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not this idea that, well, I come for Sunday church and I'm there on Sunday and I get worked up in emotions and everything and this emotionalism and, and this, this type of pep rally type thing, and then, well, I close my Bible and I don't open it again till the next Sunday. That's not the idea. But when we gather together, we are called to stir up, to inspire one another, to love the Lord in a greater way Monday through Saturday. Like when I gather together and I open up God's word, hopefully it's doing something in me to say, man, I want to open up my Bible more. Like, I want to know more about that. Like, that was so inspiring for me today. That so encouraged me today. That so convicted me today. It so challenged me today that, man, I want to get into God's word. Like, like I've been challenged to do that. I've been stirred up to do that. I want to, I want to pray more in my relationship with the Lord. That's the idea. I'm to stir up someone that when we gather together, it is about us stirring one another's affections to love the Lord more, to be rooted and grounded in him more. That's Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3 where he says, here's what I want you to know and I'm praying for you. In fact, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 3. Keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 10. In Ephesians 3 verse 17, he says, you being rooted and grounded in love that you would be strengthened to comprehend, key phrase, with all the saints. Like this is something that I want you to do together. This isn't something that I'm just singling out certain individuals. No, no, no. With all the saints. What are we to be rooted and grounded in? What are we to understand more and more? How are our affections supposed to be stirred up that we would understand what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now go back to Hebrews 10. What is verse 23 says that we need to hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering. Why? Because he's faithful. He's faithful even when I'm not. And you know what I've found is true? I can only hold fast to one thing at a time. I don't have four arms, and neither do you. 
So if I'm holding fast to this book that just happens to be the Bible, but if I'm holding fast to this, it's the idea I'm hugging it tightly, and I want to hold fast to this pulpit, I can't do two things at one time. It means I have to lay down one so that I can hold tightly to the other thing. And you can only hold on tightly to one thing at a time. You know what drives me crazy when I go to the mall? It's not going to the mall. Well, that's not the greatest thing I like to do. But it's those kiosks in the mall, right? Which I hate to almost use this illustration, but this is what's in my mind when I think about how many things are stealing my affection. Because some of you in this room might work at one of those kiosks, and if you do, God bless you. I have so much respect for you. Like, keep doing a great job. But that's not, I, the way that things are done in that drive me a little crazy. You know what I mean? Like you're walking right through the kiosk and all of a sudden someone selling perfume sprays it right in your face or cologne. Thank you for that, right? Or, do you, or how many of you are like this? You're going into the mall and you see all of those people in the kiosk and they're all trying to sell you something. You're like, don't make eye contact and walk briskly right by, right? Right? That's why I say I have so much respect for you if you do that for your job. But that's what I think of when I think of how many things are stealing our affections and because in life we're on a journey and we're walking down this journey and there's so many things that are speaking to us saying, no, 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 you want this. This is going to give you the satisfaction that you want. No, 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 you want this. You want, you want the praises of this. No, you want this certain thing. No, you want this. Relate. I mean, we could go on and on and on, and you're walking down the journey of life, and you're so trying to concentrate and say, okay, I need to make sure that I'm holding fast to the thing that I truly will give me what I desire, that will truly give me the satisfaction and the contentment, my relationship with the Lord. I need to hold fast to it without wavering, knowing that my God is faithful even when I'm not. And there's so many things speaking to you on either side of you. That's our lives. And when I get caught up into thinking that I don't need to gather together with other people that are walking that same journey so that we all can remind ourselves of what is my first love, what is this thing that I need to go hard after? What is the thing that will truly give me what I desire? What is the thing, what have I been saved from and saved to? And why am I here? And I'm not here for myself, but I'm here for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the love that he has for me, a love that cannot be duplicated by any other person or any other thing. And when we gather together, he is the one that we lift high. Why? Because we are to stir one another, inspire one another to love. To love who? To love Jesus in a greater way so that when we are in our places and in our quiet places and when we get up in the morning or whenever we do it that we're reminded, man, I wanna love God and be in his word and grow in my walk with the Lord and hold fast and draw near with assurance and hold fast to the confession of hope. Why? Because I am reminded what Jesus has done for me isolation is the enemy to spiritual growth. We stir one another to love, but what's the other thing? We stir one another to good works. And what makes a good work good? When it's motivated with the proper idea. See, I don't do good works because of what it can do for me. I don't do a good work for you because of what you can do for me. No, that's manipulation. 
No, what is my motivation to do good works? It's love for the Lord. We've been looking at that throughout this whole series. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love my neighbor as myself because when I'm loving my neighbor as myself, when I am performing, for lack of a better word, good works, when I am doing good works, the motivation, the reason why they're good is because they're not motivated out of guilt, they're not motivated out of self, they're motivated out of my love for the Lord. Like I said before, there's no selfish purpose in the gathering. It's to inspire one another because discipleship happens through relationships. It doesn't happen on your own. You're all here up to this point. Even if you're not a believer yet, you're here probably because someone invited you. I mean, not every one of you. Or you're here today because someone loved you enough to tell you about Jesus. Or you're here enough because your life group leader loves you enough to walk through that difficult time in your life that you had a year ago. And I'm no different. I'm here today because of other people who love me enough to stir me up to love and good works. Discipleship happens through relationship, but we're so easily deceived into thinking otherwise, aren't we? Because look at verse 25. Look how it starts off not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. That word neglect has the idea that you stopped an activity for an extended period of time. You know what's interesting? This is a struggle back when the book of Hebrews was being written to a group of people, just like it's a struggle for us today. Not a lot's changed. The things that are vying for our affections may have changed. But hearts haven't changed. Temptations haven't changed. And so the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them not to neglect, not to stop an activity for an extended a period of time to where it becomes what? Look at what it says. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. That word habit is the Greek word ethos. Literally, Speaking of your belief system, the grid by which you run every decision through. And what happens is when we, when we stop gathering together over an extended period of time, what begins to happen is, is we develop a belief system that says, I don't really need to gather together. I'm good on my own. I don't like when I gather together because it reminds me what I'm not doing. I like what I'm doing for me. It's a habit. It's a belief system. But look at this. It says, as is the habit of some. And when I read that phrase this week, it made me ask, I wonder how many of us today would be the sum. Like you might be here today and you're like, man, I picked a good day to come back to church after three months. <laughs> right? But the reality is we all have the potential to be the sum. We all have the t potential to get deceived into thinking that gathering together is not essential to our spiritual growth. We all have the potential in believing we can do more in isolation than we can with one another. But understand that's not a thought from the Lord, that's a thought from the enemy. See, we shouldn't be shocked that many followers of Jesus don't have a conviction about meeting together. We shouldn't be shocked by that because... Like I said, the writer of Hebrews says that this is the problem. 
And I've said this last week, but I'll say it again. A lot of us are like, well, I haven't been to church in, you know, six to eight, three months. I'm not going to give a certain time because you think, okay, as long as I don't fall into what Johnny didn't say, I'm good. Like that's, but you're like, oh, I listen to the podcast. I, I catch up on, I watch you on, on you know, the video. And, or I listen, man, I listen to five pastors, man, not just you. I listen to someone different every day. Well, God forbid that I gave you the idea that this is just about hearing me preach. See, here's what I believe the reason is why we so often fall into the ethos, into thinking that this isn't important. It's because the church is no longer a personal soul commitment of gratitude to the God who has faithfully redeemed me and sustained me. What the church has become is a when it works for me. And when we insert church to the point of convenience, we have already negated its ability to be what it needs to be in our life. It's not a matter of convenience. It's a matter of understanding it's essential to my spiritual growth. That's why you have the phrases, let us, let us. We need to be committed to this together. Here's the second thing and we'll be done. We gather together to inspire one another, but we also gather together to encourage one another. That's clearly what it says here. Look at verse 25. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me go a step further. Because what I've found from the days of when we were involved in church planting and we we planted some churches and it's like you've got 50 people in a room to when you have hundreds and hundreds, is that if you just come into this place and you show up and you slip in right before the service and you leave, you can be inspired and you can be encouraged from what happens on stage, but you're missing that one another piece. It's about bringing yourself and putting yourself in an environment to where these can actually be played out on a personal level. You know what we like to say here? Life groups is the other part of church. And I find this is when encouragement and stirring up and inspiring one another happen the best. Because I think we oftentimes minimize the power of an encouraging word in a person's life. I can think of many times that are going through my mind right now where someone did not know how much an encouraging word meant to me in that moment of my life. And you can too. And you know what's awesome? Is when we're coming together to gather and we're not focused on me, but we're actually focused on why we gather. Lord, I'm here for you and I'm here to look for an opportunity to stir up somebody else to love Jesus and encourage somebody else. That when we do that and I'm coming into this building at a low point in my life, if we're all thinking that way, nobody leaves not being encouraged. It's an amazing thing, is it not? It's an amazing thing. Thing. Why? Because that's what Lord, the Lord said we're supposed to do. And amazing enough, I'll say it again, is that when we obey what the Lord says, it works. But you know, I've talked a lot about the importance of one another and being together and encouraging one another and stirring up one another. And I talked about how important community is. But I want you to hear from someone who is a part of our church 
on the impact it's made in their life. Look at the screens. My name is Cecile Vosel, and I started attending Salem Chapel in 2012 and joined my first life group in 2013. I was a senior at Wake Forest and joining life group right after having graduated college um, was a time where I was trying to discover who I was in my faith, making my faith my own, not something that my parents had put on me. And during that time being in life group, I was learning how to be an adult. I was living outside of the campus environment. Um, so life group for me not only provided consistency, it provided accountability with being in the word, with growing. Um, it continued my excitement for learning about who God was, what he was doing in my life and really getting me connected to this body and to this church. I'm from Florida, so I'm not from the area. And during that time, I really didn't have a community outside of my undergrad friends. And so joining a life group for me provided me with a family here in Winston-Salem. It became much more than walking into service on Sunday, learning about how to apply the word to my life and leaving, but turned into a place where I gathered with my family, where I walked in, saw the group that I knew, um, had people to go to lunch with after service, and so quickly those people that I met with every Thursday night became my family and my friends and my support system. And it made all the difference and made this place feel much more like my home. I've been encouraged um, and grown and stretched in not always ways that I might have chosen for myself, but I've loved this past opportunity I've had um, since January to lead a life group. Mary Beth and I lead the Women's Young Professional Life Group, and taking on that role has really caused me to step out and not only own my own faith and grow in my own walk, but now being able to pour into other people and watch them learn and grow. And we have girls in our group that are in that grad school age that are coming out of college and being able to be for them what somebody was for me and to provide that family aspect over Easter. We had um, Easter dinner together. And so me being able to do that for girls and create that family environment where I had had that done for me at that life stage has just really come full circle and all kicked off and provided from the community in this church and from my life group experience. Can we put up that picture of that we showed earlier of that lion separating that water buffalo. Just to remind ourselves as we close this morning that that's what the enemy desires for you. To isolate you from the very thing that can help you. But here's the awesome thing is as I was just the different shows that I've watched that have different things with nature is when those water buffalo, or really any herd that's being hunted by a lion, when they decide not to separate from the pack, but stick together, that's what happens. And what that drive home is just that illustration from nature, is when you have a group of people, a church, called out ones, that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that are committed to inspire one another, to love Jesus, and to represent Him in word and deed, when they are committed to encourage one another, 
and come into a place not just focused on what they need, but what others may need as well, let me tell you something. The enemy and his minions run from that type of place. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, and you know, I know we still have people coming back, and Labor Day's next week, but ministries launch the week of September 8th. Man, that if you're not already connected to this place, and this place is a place that you call home or are wanting to call home, that you take advantage of gathering together. That you count it as essential to your spiritual growth.